Philippians chapter 4, and we are beginning to read at verse 14. Philippians 4, 14. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I need the gift, but I, I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gift you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. <clears throat> well, the message I want to bring to you today is based on verse 19. It concerns the riches of God found in Christ Jesus. The riches spoken about encompass everything we receive, which is good. James says, the kindness of our God is seen in every good and perfect gift. Whether we receive directly from God or through another, it is ultimately God who is the giver. I intend that we together <clears throat> meditate on the great supplies of mercies which daily come to us from God. I hope to make it clear that access to the riches of God is only given to those who belong to Jesus Christ. And hopefully we'll glorify God in our hearts today. But before we do that, I'm going to take a detour. We've come to the end of this book, Philippians. We began it in, well, many months ago. I thought it would be right to briefly recap some of the key teachings we've studied together. I don't mean for you to follow this as we go through. Just try and focus and uh, get an impression of the main points that we looked at. So, there was firstly the matter of the local church. The local church. And by local church, we don't mean the one which happens to be down the road from where you live. A local church is simply a congregation of believers properly set up. Its people meet together for worship as often as they can. It's this group which has the word of God ministered to them week by week to help their spiritual growth. And it's the headquarters for their evangelism. <clears throat> well, secondly, we learned the importance of sharing our gospel message with others. So this isn't a work to be left to those who we think are most capable, but is rather an activity 
that is expected of all believers. And since there's a multitude of ways in which this can be done, no one can exempt themselves from this responsibility. All of us can and must do something. Number three, Paul spoke about our individual growth as disciples of Jesus Christ. He exhorted us to grow in love, firstly towards God and secondly towards the brethren, and lastly everyone else. There was also an encouragement to grow in knowledge, the primary way we do that being the study of the scriptures. <clears throat> Another aspect of growth was the fostering of a spirit of wisdom, applying our knowledge of God to all areas of life. Paul mentioned the unpopular subject of our death next. Although death is part of the universal curse of God, which we all must taste, Paul instead chose to view death as a gateway to the paradise of God. It wasn't, it wasn't death itself he relished, but rather the glory which came after it. Having said this, he acknowledged he still had work to do and he intended to get on with it. <clears throat> Five, in the beginning of a wonderful piece of poetry, Christ is shown as the one who humbled himself to an astonishing degree. <clears throat> well, it was necessary for the accomplishment of salvation, but it also provided us with a great example. If the king of kings is prepared to humble himself, how much more should we be prepared to humble ourselves before God? Number six, in the same poem or song that we find, we see it ends with a magnificent statement of the exaltation of Christ. From the low point of humility, he ascended to regain the exalted status he had with God before the world existed. And in doing this, he became our advocate and secured our salvation. Number seven, well, we then spoke about the power of God in us. Although the Bible is clear that God is the source of all we're able to do, his scriptures speak about us doing things for him. Things appropriate for one of his workers. This is why we're meant to work furiously for God while we have time. And yet always acknowledge the power to do these things comes from above. Number eight. Well, the letter then looked at the issue of he who the... Uh, real Jews are who the real Jews are up until his day it was pretty clear Jews were those who were part of that arrangement that covenant with God but Paul shows how with the advent of the kingdom of God the definition has changed now the true Jew is the one who has Christ as their saviour the value of that, that bodily circumcision has gone. God performs circumcision on the hearts 
of people of all races, bringing them under his new covenant. Number nine, the apostle continued by describing his old self. The apostle had trusted in his credentials as a model Israelite. But when the risen Jesus appeared to him and granted him full redemption, he became aware of the utter worthlessness of all those things. He understood that real acceptance with God could only happen if a person had perfect righteousness. And only those who'd allied themselves with the Messiah could get this thing, could get this perfect righteousness. Number 10. The book continued with an encouragement for the believer to identify with Jesus. We're to expect suffering if we belong to him. Paul said it was a privilege to suffer for Jesus' sake. We come closer to him as a result. And just as Jesus went to the grave, so shall we follow him. The great news, of course, is just as he exited the grave and became alive forever, so shall we. Number 11. We then talked about being citizens of heaven. There is a way we're supposed to act in this world, showing kindness even to our enemies and being, well, being generally good members of society. But our citizenship of the heavenly kingdom is far more important. And it's our job to act in such a way as to make us model citizens of Zion. Number 12. The peace of God, it said, is so great as to be beyond our comprehension. The more we make ourselves dependent on God, the more peace we can enjoy. God gives us this valuable gift in response to our prayer. And we saw that despite the complexities of the human brain and the multitudes of ways it can go wrong, whenever the peace of God does come, it eradicates all forms of anxiety. Number 13. There was a list of virtues presented to us. Paul coaxed the believers to look out for these things in the world around them. It was beneficial to see God at work in the people of this world, even if they remained in a state of rebellion against him. It's good, Paul said, to raise our eyes above the sinfulness of this world and consider those higher things. But seeing these things and even doing them ourselves will not help someone get right with God in the slightest way. A man or woman must raise their vision even higher 
and see the perfection of Christ if they're to find salvation. And 14, our last message was about the great subject of Christian contentment. It surprises some to find contentment being urged on people of all social statuses and degrees of wealth. People with hardly anything are to be content with what they have. And the people who have plenty are also to be content and not covered even more. Wisdom will teach us the biblical truth that godliness accompanied by contentment is of great advantage. Well, in this, just this one letter, then we have a wealth of teaching what type of people we should be, how we're meant to work together, and how we're to exalt God in our hearts through being conformed to the image of Christ. And now we come to our final theme in this letter, God's riches found in Christ Here's my first point. It is that when we are in Christ, God becomes ours. In Christ, God becomes ours. Well, we can't talk about riches until we talk about Christ in particular, how he becomes ours. He is the Saviour and King, but we must have him as our Saviour and King. You'll notice in verse 19, Paul says it's his God. Paul says it's his God who'll supply their need. He's obviously not saying he's my God, not yours. He was, he was and is Paul's God, but it's clear the supplies he promises the Philippians can only be theirs because they themselves are in a relationship with Jesus. I think it's helpful that Paul speaks in this way. It allows us to highlight wrong thinking about our relationship with God. There'll be those, you know, who think about being a Christian in a very individualistic way. They might see their relationship with God as so important that you know, worshipping and working alongside other believers isn't as important. So, while, while I recognise Jesus Christ is my saviour, you see, uh, he's also our saviour, collectively. If you're a believer, Jesus died for you personally. He had you in mind when he bore all the penalty for your sin. But he most certainly didn't die so believers could exist in isolation. Okay, well how does this How do people become Christ's? How does it happen? What do I say to people on the street? How do I, how do I present the way by which my God 
can become their God. Well, I share the gospel. There's 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 no uh, there's no widespread agreement in the church of how the gospel should be presented. You would think that you know we agree on all these fundamentals. Well, we 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 all preach Christ. He died on a cross. You come to him in repentance. You can be saved and forgiven and receive eternal life. That's true. But because we have to. Um, well, we expand on that and we explain it. That's where we depart. And as you know, I um, not only avoid but countenance others to, to never go on the street and preach. Come on, everyone. God loves you. Oh, he, 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 he loves you so much. He's, he, he's waiting. He's crying. Uh, waiting for you because you won't be his friend. Oh, well, you just... He's such a good friend. Will you just come to him? You know, friends, that would make Christ a beggar. It's 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 just awful. It's it's unbiblical sentimental sentimentalism. It's just it's just awful. What what do I say? This is not perfect, but here's here's an idea of what I would say on the street. Well, I tell people about sin, righteousness, and judgment. The reality of sin, the need for perfect righteousness, and the coming judgment for those who don't have that righteousness. What else? I tell them they're in danger. Don't tell them God thinks they're great. I tell them they're in danger from that God. I tell them to flee from the wrath to come. Because God is the one who will be coming after them in fury. I tell them to appeal to that God in mercy. He's the one you've committed crimes against. He doesn't look on the sinner like with this wonderful favour and love. It's wrong. He just they're under condemnation. I tell them this that all who come to God in sincere repentance will be accepted and forgiven. Now to the one who is sensitive of his sin and conscious of his crimes against God, that's what he wants to hear. Now those of you who have borne witness for Christ to others will confirm there is widespread indifference to these gospel messages. It doesn't mean the gospel is faulty. It doesn't mean you need to be more professional in your approach. God will save his elect people without exception. Those who have been created by God to save them and make them great trophies of his grace will all come to Jesus. All those who God has prepared for destruction will not come to Jesus. As one of our brothers said the other day, the Lord will use our witness in whatever ways he sees fit. Our witnessing is always successful, whether people believe it or not. This is why as a church, we shouldn't think the word of God is only successful when people are added to our number. 
when people join us. God will have mercy on whom he will have mercy. We just need to do our job. Well, here's the second point. It is that when we are in Christ Jesus, we find God supplies us. In Christ, God supplies us. Well, if at some point in your life you've repented towards God, you've exercised faith in Jesus Christ, you are now regarded as being in Christ. And being in that new state, you have access to the abundant stores of God. You remember uh, Paul had been thanking the, uh, the Philippian uh, believers for helping him out financially. And it, it's in response to that that he promises to them that their needs will be taken care of as well. And by reminding them of whatever good things they receive are really from God, he's in effect teaching them that their gift to him was in a way also from God. But again, the riches of God are found in Christ. It's not merely that he is the middleman who passes on the riches of God to the faithful believers. The picture here isn't of God handing over gifts from his warehouse to his son, which he then hands to us. More accurately, at least as it's, as it's pictured here, Christ is the warehouse. It's not enough to know Jesus. We have to be in him, so to speak. You should remember this, folks. When, when you receive from the, 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 the saints or you give to them, this is nothing less than God moving resources from one place to another, using us as his machinery. When you receive something from a brother or sister, you rightly thank them. And they rightly say, you're welcome. But more so, you thank God for them. And when you give, you recognise you're simply transferring a benefit of God's to where it's needed more. You see, now we're in Christ, the whole nature of giving and receiving has changed. Uh, last time, we spoke about believers who had next to nothing and other believers who had plenty. But if, if we're all in Christ, we're all, in one sense, rich, very rich, in all the ways which matter most, we are the multi-millionaires of this world. And it's all to do with the riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Listen to this scripture in Corinthians. 2 Corinthians verses 8 and 9 says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. We spoke earlier about Jesus in this state of humiliation. And the only reason we receive riches from God is because of the willingness of Christ to humble himself and take the form of a servant. 
Jesus was poor in terms of the family he was born into. He was poor in terms of where, <coughs> you know, where he came from. He was poor in terms of his wealth. He was poor in terms of his social standing. But the most important way in which he was poor was that he put aside the riches of his heavenly dwelling place. He left all that behind to be born of a woman, to suffer and to die. And he did that for you. In terms of the true riches of soul, he was willing to be, become poverty stricken so you could be found in him having access to all the riches of God. Even the Christian with the weakest profession of faith is mega rich compared to the unbelievers of this world. You are wealthy. All your fellow believers are wealthy. When Jesus himself delivered a message for the New Testament church at um, Smyrna, he acknowledged they were being persecuted and had no money, but told them they were rich. Paul understood he was rich in Christ, and he had so much confidence in the abundance of God's riches in Christ, he was able to make this bold promise to the Philippians. He knew God could identify need in the church and take care of that need fully. You might, um, you might remember me making the point last time that we need to understand scriptures based on where we find them. Paul had been talking about, uh, he'd been talking here about receiving financial gifts. So when, uh, when, when he promises the Philippians that God would sort them out too, we might think it's all about money. We might think Paul is promising the Philippians God will make sure they have enough materially to cover all their needs. This is part of it. Through other people, God provides us with money and clothing and food. But when we think about the larger context by which, I mean, not just this chapter, but the whole letter, we remember Paul has been preoccupied with the spiritual wealth of the people of Philippi. I started this message by rehearsing all the things Paul had written to the Philippians about their spiritual growth, their conformity to Jesus Christ, their zeal for the gospel. He was clearly far more interested in their spiritual wealth than their material wealth. Jesus understood material needs. He understood them. But one day when he had that encounter with Satan, he quoted this verse from the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 8 and verse 3. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. But what are these riches? What, what are these things we have and which we should always want more of? Here are a few. 
Well, in Romans 2, Paul says these riches are his kindness, tolerance and patience. In Romans 11, the riches are the wisdom and knowledge of God. In Colossians 1, the riches are the revelation of Christ to us. And in Ephesians 1, the riches are all, all that comes from God's grace. Have you experienced the, kind, the, the, the kindness of God? Has he revealed Christ to you? Can you say you've been saved by his grace through faith? If so, then you possess untold riches. Well, here's my third point, folks. That when we're in Christ, we find that God's riches are inexhaustible. In Christ, God's riches are inexhaustible. In the middle of verse 19, there's this it's an important term there. It says, according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. According to is the important bit. Let me try to define this. According to. The ability of God to supply the Philippians' needs and our needs is based on the level of riches he has in his possession. That makes sense. He can't, he can't give what he doesn't have. Of course, no one here, no one here believes God's ability to give is finite. We all know God's generosity is not limited and he'll always have enough to fulfill that generosity. For those who are in Christ, they will find God's riches are infinite. Romans 11 talks about the depth of the riches of God. Oh, the depth, it says. The depth. If we were to now liken the wealth of God to an ocean, it would be one that had no bottom to it. And these riches are ours for the asking. And God himself promises he'll give us what we need. We should avoid thinking this, this process uh, of giving as a sort of supply and demand arrangement. It's not just about us. <laughs> the vastness of the wealth of God tells us something about him. It reflects his glory. He is, after all, the king above all kings. So we can now see, in giving to us so generously, we learn even more about the glory of God. He is like the ultimate philanthropist. He has, uh, he has wealth which he didn't receive from anyone else, and he gives it away in abundance, at a level that cannot be measured. From the dawn of time, when the Christian church was formed in the Garden of Eden, God was dispensing riches to his people. And down through the ages, he has continued showering his riches on his elect people. And now we find ourselves as the newest recipients of those riches. His wealth is limitless. 
He gives endless supplies away. And his wealth remains limitless. No wonder Paul ended that section in verse 20 with this short doxology. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. God not only supplies our need, he teaches us. His riches in glory are inexhaustible. And he glorifies himself by giving it away liberally. We have uh, here in the UK, we have a new Prime Minister. Surprise, surprise, like many politicians from different parties, he's a multi-millionaire. His net worth is in the region of <clears throat> 730 million pounds. What's that? Almost a billion dollars. To put that in perspective, right? If you, if you said you were going to give me uh, just one million pounds, it would take me all day just to, just to take that in, just to wrap my head around it. I'd need to go and have a lie down. So to talk about someone having hundreds of millions, it just doesn't compute. A few years from now, our Prime Minister will be lying on his deathbed. The amount of money he owns at that point will be irrelevant. Others will spend his money. Well, a tiny proportion of it. Anyway, the, the rest will just sit in the bank again. And when those others die, it'll be passed on to someone else. They have better houses than us. They drive around in nicer cars. They have fancier holidays than us. But it's all temporary. And when these people stand before God at the judgment, they'll understand then their material wealth is worthless. At that point, they would swap all those hundreds of millions but a saving knowledge of Christ, riches of salvation and of eternal life. But that won't be possible. Mm -mm. And their eternity will be one devoid of any material or spiritual comforts. Do you see, friend? Do you see the value of the riches that you have? On behalf of God, I confidently give you the go-ahead today to covet the riches of God in Christ. I'm telling you this week to be discontent, to want more and more of the knowledge of God, more of his wisdom, more of all those qualities we want to see increasing in us. My job as a preacher is to help you increase in these riches of God in Christ so you might be dripping in the jewellery of God's graces. And today, as well as reminding you of the great riches of God that you enjoy now in Christ, I leave you with this. As you continue in your walk with God, there are even more riches 
being stored up for you in heaven. You don't only have the joy of seeing all your needs met in this life, but there are untold riches securely stored in the bank of God, reserved for you to enjoy forevermore. May you all, may we all, be much in prayer that God will continue to enrich us and in doing this, bring glory upon his great name. Amen.